Today's episode is sponsored by Stitches Midwest. Stitches Midwest will be taking place at the Schomburg Convention Center from August 2nd through 5th, 2018. Get ready for this crafting expo, sewing, quilting, knitting, crochet, and more all under one roof. This show is for multi-crafters, those not defined by one craft or even by one medium. With stimulating classes and shopping for all, knitters, crocheters, weavers, and sewers, quilters, and others interested in all things yarn and fabric. You can learn more at stitches.events slash Midwest. Thank you so much, Stitches Midwest. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 122 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we are talking about the business of fabric with my guests, Aaron Hoffman and Haley Hoffman Chisholm of Hoffman California Fabrics. Together, Aaron and Haley represent the fourth generation of the Hoffman family working in the company that will hit its 94th anniversary later this year. Haley works as marketing and sales associate. Her mother, Robin Hoffman Hack, is the chief financial officer. And Haley designed two juvenile-oriented screen-printed lines, Summer Punch and Desert Dawn. She also created Hoffman Home, a boutique collection of placemats and napkins made of Hoffman Bali batik fabrics and sold on house. She's the youngest Hoffman working at the company. Haley, welcome. Hi. Nice to have you. And Erin launched the Me and You brand to offer hand-dyed solids and batiks featuring minimalist graphic designs over solid backgrounds. His goal was to make batiks more appealing to quilters pursuing the modern aesthetic in their projects. Erin's father is Tony Hoffman, the company's CEO. Walter Hoffman, who still works daily in the office, is grandfather to Erin and Haley. Aaron, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you both for being here. So congratulations on the 94th anniversary. That is truly something to celebrate for a family-owned business. Yeah, it's awesome. We are pretty proud to be the fourth generation. Yes, it's pretty amazing. And having spent some time over the past week as I was preparing for this interview, researching your story, I know that... Being in business as a family for 94 years has meant pivoting a couple of times in order to stay relevant and stay engaged with the market. So I want to kind of take us through that journey. It hasn't been the same business exactly, although it's always been a fabric business. Um, and so I want to start back in the beginning because Hoffman is really rooted, which I think is so fascinating, in surfing and surf fashion, um, although that was maybe the first pivot. So um, so let's talk a little bit about Walter Hoffman, who, as I mentioned in the intro, is both of your grandfathers and his brother, Philip, who is known as Flippy. Um, so Aaron, do you want to tell us a little bit about them and about their surfing? 
Yeah, so of course they both loved surfing and being around the ocean and diving and all that kind of stuff. And what happened was, you know, their father was really pushing them to come back and work. And basically what they wanted to do was they wanted to surf. So they figured how could they still travel and surf and work for the family business. And that's kind of how uh, my grandfather, Walter, introduced Hawaiian fabrics into the market. And and Flippy was in Bali and, create, and discovered Batik. So they figured how they can still travel and surf and then create fabric to sell. Okay. So they were spending a lot of time in Hawaii, like when they were younger. Yes. And they were surfing like waves in Hawaii. And this was sort of like maybe in like the... 30s and 40s. Do I have that timeline right when they were? I would say late 40s, early 50s is when they were really surfing in Hawaii a lot. Okay. And they were like award-winning surfers. They weren't just like surfing for fun. Like they were like amazingly good surfers. Oh yeah. They're both very, very well-known big wave surfers. I mean, my grandfather and his brother were the first guys to go surf Hawaii, the North shore of Hawaii. And them and their friends discovered a lot of the famous surfing breaks that you know about today. Okay. All right. So they, and like, there's like old videos and stuff that you can watch of them. And it's, yeah, they're really pretty, it's pretty charming and interesting to to see. I was looking at some of that. Um, And so when they were there and really involved in kind of surfing culture, one of the things that they discovered was like surfing fashion and coming back to California surfing fashion was something that they wanted to to kind of bring back as something that you would wear to identify yourself almost as a surfer. Yeah, exactly. They really wanted that laid back lifestyle that they had on the North Shore and all their buddies wanted it too. And so our grandpa figured out a way that if he can make cool prints that keeps them kind of part of their little club and a little bit exclusive, but also relaxed, then he had something that could sell on the coast of California as well. So he was pretty excited when they kind of started to bring those prints over to this shore. And then the business just grew from there. And he had a hand in starting pretty much every surf culture brand that there has been um, beginning way back with OP, Ocean Pacific and all those. So it's been kind of exciting to see that that surf culture maintains itself and has obviously lasted this long and continues to last as the sport grows. Right, because the family business was was already a fabric business, right? So, yes. um, the father, your this is, I guess, a great grandfather was Rube, yeah. and he had this family business was a fabric business, but it was like woolen flannel, so having nothing to do with surfing prints or anything like that. So he wanted them to come back, work in this family business, and settle down maybe a little bit. And they were like, okay, cool, but we're going to do it our way. Exactly. He was still doing the plaids and the solids of wool for department stores. And they were like, well, this is more fun. (laughs) Right. Okay. And so by bringing in these prints, and then so they would um, they would create these prints and then like license them to the apparel industry that was making maybe Hawaiian shirts and surf shorts. At the time, they were doing the actual printing of the fabric as well. So now we do license a lot of our classic archived prints to surf, co- surf companies now. But at the time, they were doing full-blown printing um, of the actual goods and oftentimes creating the shirts themselves or, oh, wow. or whatever. Okay. So it was sort of like soup to nuts. Everything was being done. Exactly. Uh Uh-huh. Back in those days. Okay, cool. And I know, um, 
I think I read in the 1980s that the like Aloha shirt that Tom Selleck wore in Magnum <laughs> PI was a Hoffman print. It was. It's actually still printed. We printed over like a million yards of it. And the shirt itself is in the Smithsonian. So that orchid and that bird have been really, it's called Jungle, Jungle Bird is one of them and the orchid's the other. And Tom Selleck, of course, made them famous. Um, but yeah, super famous print, uh, Hoffman all the way, really. That is really, really cool. And I think that's a, so that was sort of like, I feel like that was the first pivot, right? Like that kept the family in the fabric business, right? Like it kept, um, it kept the family from leaving the fabric business. It kept the family in the fabric business to pivot from wool flannels to <laughs> making these Hawaiian um, sort of surf prints, yeah. um, which is really cool. And, um, and then um, I know recently, like Van Shoes licensed some of those same designs. Yeah, the Vans has been a great partner in business with us for years and years. And there's so many West Coast brands that still are in the surf culture and trying to do something new, but trying to maintain that old classic vibe. And so they come into our archives and find what they think is going to sell today and still pay homage to what the great guys did back in the fifties. And so they're coming here, which is really cool. And then we see shirts today in the stores, which is awesome. Right. So do you have like, a, what does your archives look like? I'm just sort of, I'm kind of a nerd for um, textile archives. <laughs> I think they're really cool. Yeah. Do you have like, um, like a vault or something? Like, what does that look like? There's, um, there's a, a two story structure in our warehouse that has, I don't know, probably 50,000 hanger samples. But then the back two rows of our warehouse is all my grandfather since maybe 1940, late 40s, has been saving at least nine yards of every print we've ever done. So we have a like a full roll of every design we've done since, I don't know, early yeah. 50s in our warehouse. Wow. We've heard, it's the, we've heard cool. it's the largest tropical or Hawaiian print textile library in the United States. Probably the world. Wow. That is such a neat, neat thing. And it's really almost like a, yeah, it's like an, an archive. I mean, it's, it's really, um, it's like a, a, yeah, documenting this, the history of, of this particular kind of prints yeah. and, um, and its development over time. How neat. Yeah. Um, wow. That some, is really cool. We need a historian and an author to come through and document the timeline of surfing and the culture with the fabrics. It would be so awesome. Okay. That's somebody's project. Yeah. There's somebody out there. <laughs> I'm not signing up for it, but, I, but we need somebody. We need somebody to do that. That is a good project for somebody who's out there listening, somebody's thesis, PhD thesis or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there you go. Okay. Um, all right. And then you talked very, you mentioned very briefly in passing, and I just want to dig in slightly deeper about um, about somebody, um, and I forget who you mentioned, went to Bali and discovered batiks. Can Aaron, I think it was you who mentioned that. Can you just go back and, and say a little bit more about, about that? Yeah. So they were, uh, Flippy and Walter were traveling and surfing. I don't know. They must have went to Bali. I think they went to first went to Bali in the mid seventies or late seventies. And they were of course surfing there and they were checking the local market and they found batik designs and they were actually one day surfing at this break there. And at that time there wasn't very many people surfing there and they were, they struck up a conversation with another guy in the water and that guy was making, um, clothing for a little local market there and he had his own little batik plant. And so they went back to the guy's batik plant and figured they can do continuous yardage. And so flippies, they started doing that first for like a uh, speedo and a couple other companies. They were producing garments with all hand painted fabrics. 
And then uh, really Flippy's the one who first brought batiks to the quilting market. It was kind of his idea. And so we've been producing batiks at the same factory there for, I think, 35 years. Wow. Okay. And I actually want to think a little bit or talk a little bit about the, I feel like this was maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm onto something. Um, this next pivot, which is to quilting. Um, so, um, so there was sort of this production for surfing, um, and surfing clothing. Um, and then at what point was there a discovery that, Hey, quilters are out there and we could produce fabrics to cater to them, and maybe if we want to survive or thrive as a fabric company, we might need to cater to them. So, when did that happen? So that I don't know exactly when that happened, but pretty much it was all under Flippy's direction, and it was really Flippy that was pushing it to sell to the over-the-counter fabric stores. It was him and his his group of art art people that he had working for him here at Hoffman Fabrics. So Walter was kind of more of the manufacturing the surfing companies and like that. And then Flippy was really geared towards selling to the -the over-the-counter stores. Okay. And, and that was, um, was mainly batiks from the beginning. It was, no, he had others, he had other prints too, like conversationals and lots of, we've always had a holiday, holiday themed fabrics. It was, and I think batiks just kind of came with it. Okay. I see. And, um, and I, but I think that maybe was Hoffman one of the first, uh, companies to introduce batiks to quilters? Um, I mean, was that like one of the signature things, one of the first companies that like said, hey, quilters, here's something interesting and neat that maybe you haven't seen before. Yeah. Like, look at these batik fabrics. Yes. I would say we are the first or one of the first. Okay. And was was there a particular quilter or quilt designer who sort of took to them right away and helped to show people how to use them or um, you know, wrote books about them or wrote patterns, you know, or taught people what to do with them. I'm just wondering if there was sort of a collaboration there. Yeah. I mean, we're not sure if there was a certain quilter out there that we're maybe not giving enough credit to, but I do think that Flippy, uh, really put out that there's this collection of fabric that looks hand done with these crazy colors, which colors, colors that weren't seen in quilting fabric yet. You know, there was always the muted tones or solids or plaids or stripes or really basic stuff. And so then they kind of brought these like almost tie dye kind of crazy colors and hand drawn, hand painted, hand stamped fabrics. And then another thing that goes with that is I know that from the get go Flippy was, and my grandpa too, Walter, were always going to use the best gray goods. So I think one way that they were able to convey that to quilters was that these are going to be a lot easier to sew with. And they're going to work better in your projects. And I know that from the way back, I mean, Sandy's been here for 30 years. Our project coordinator, Sandy Muckenthaler, she was Flippy's right-hand girl and she quilts and that's what she lives and breathes. And so I think from the get-go, that was kind of a big selling point for them, that there were these awesome, achievable colors that maybe weren't achievable prior and the gray goods that were going to help you quilt better. Okay. And are the, are the batiks printed on a different gray good? And just explain for people who don't know that word, what a gray good is. Just let's back up real quick. Yeah. Gray good is basically the base cloth. Um, a lot of times it's, it's included that it's prepared for dye. So it, they, they bleach out any natural color, um, in the cotton and kind of comb it nicely so that it's ready to be printed or dyed or 
whatever they're going to do to it. And um, our petite gray goods, I don't exactly know the thread count. Do it's, you? it's a much higher thread count and a tighter weave than a lot of the other boutiques on the market. And Okay. And, and, and it's a tighter weave and a higher thread count than a regular solid fabric sure. as well. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because I know when I've sewn with batiks in the past, I've noticed that, that it's yeah. a tighter weave than, you know, just maybe like a regular solid fabric that a quilter would use. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was okay. also a, uh, kind of something that was new and exciting. Now it's kind of expected, but at the time that was also an innovation. And I've been, you know, I was watching some of the videos. If you um, take a look at the Hoffman Fabrics YouTube um, channel, you can see some videos that show how the batiks are made in Bali. Um, and I was really struck by how handmade it really is. Um, so maybe you can just walk us through briefly um, what the process is. Um, and I'm sure you've been to see what it looks like. Um, and, but most people haven't. So just explain like how, you know, a batik fabric, one of your batik fabrics today is actually produced because I don't think most people totally know what that process is like. Well, first we create the artwork here. We have an in-house art department at Hoffman Fabrics. We'll create the piece of art and it's usually like a eight by an eight by 10 black and white line drawing. And we, we send that to our factory in Bali and they create the, the, the chop, which is basically the copper hand, the stamp they use to print the fabric. And then they, once they have the gray goods or the, the plain fabric, they'll dye the fabric and then they'll, they'll dip the, the chop in wax and then they stamp the fabric and it creates a resist. So when they dye the fabric again, wherever the wax is, the dye doesn't go, right? And then you boil the wax off and dry the fabric in the sun. <laughs> But it's really done by hand. Like we're not talking about the chop being put onto a piece of industrial machinery no. that's like lowered down and boom, boom, boom. I mean, we're talking about a, a guy who stands there and lays it down by hand, picks it up, moves yeah. and lays it down again in sort of a eyeballing it situation. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly like how we stamp when we're doing scrapbooking. Like you really hope it turns out every time and you try to line it up as best you can. Right. And so there's going to be natural slight imperfections. Totally. That's, and that's, that's the beauty. Desirable. Yeah. Like, right. That's not undesirable. Like that's desirable. So that when you look at a yard or two of this fabric, you're going to see those sort of slight misalignments or something like that. Yeah. We have a, we have a tag we put on every bolt that goes to the quilt stores. That's that kind of explains it. That says no two yards are alike. Each yard is unique. So it's, yeah, it's the beauty of it. Right. And then the fabric is literally dried in the sun. Yes. It has to be dried in the sun because the dyes are reactive. So the sun is what brings the colors out. I see. Okay. Right. Because they show like they're, they take like all of this fabric and it's like laid out in a field. And at first you think, oh, is that like a crop or something? Yeah. <laughs> and because it's like in rows in a field. And then you get a closer look and you're like, oh no, that's yards of fabric yeah. laying in rows. Mm-hmm. It's so fascinating. Okay. All right. So then it comes, it comes back and it's cut up and doubled and bolted and all the rest and, and sent off to, to the quilt stores. I want to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor, Stitches Midwest. 
Stitches Midwest will be taking place at the Schomburg Convention Center from August 2nd through 5th, 2018. So get ready for an incredible crafting expo, knitting, crochet, sewing, quilting, and more all under one roof. This show is for multi-crafters, those not defined by one craft or even by one medium. There are stimulating classes, events, and shopping for all, knitters, crocheters, weavers, and sewers, quilters, and others interested in all things yarn and fabric. Stitches Expos are considered the place to be by all in-the-know knitters and crocheters, and now they're inviting everyone who loves to quilt, sew, embroider, or embellish. This exciting four-day event includes Stitches Market with a wide variety of vendors offering the latest yarn, fabric, crafting supplies, book signings, and new crafters playground with free demonstrations and opportunities to try equipment and learn new techniques. More than 130 different intensive classes and over 20 market sessions for multi-crafters of all levels, covering a variety of related topics and taught by expert designers and industry stars. Classes range in duration from 90 minutes to six hours. The expert instructors include Stephen B., Franklin Habit, Laura Bryant, Michelle Hunter, Ebony Love, Patty Lyons, Zandy Peters, Catherine Redford, Natalie Redding, Jennifer Sternheisman, Marley Bird, Katrina Walker, and Anna Zilberg, just to name a few. Other special events include professional fabric shows, banquets, a pajama party, giveaways, and more. Fiber artists of all ages experience sensory overload in the stitches market. Mountains of beautiful yarn, fabrics, books, patterns, buttons, supplies, and gadgets of all kinds give eager shoppers exactly what they're searching for. Colors and textures to suit every style are found on the market floor. Exhibitors travel from all corners of the nation to introduce their products to the frenzy of crafters. And exclusively for Walshy Naps listeners, you can get 20% off Stitches Midwest 2018 classes and events by visiting stitches.events slash Midwest and entering the coupon code Midwest18WSN. That's Midwest18WSN at checkout. So make sure you go and enter that coupon code for 20% off on classes and events, and you'll get um, access to stimulating classes and shopping for everyone, knitters, crocheters, weavers, and sewers and quilters, and everyone interested in all things yarn and fabric. So you are not going to want to miss this amazing show. Learn more at stitches.events slash Midwest, and we hope to see you at Stitches Midwest 2018. Thank you so much, Stitches Midwest. And now back to my conversation with Haley and Aaron. So, um, so I think though, for modern quilters, and you can tell me, do batiks get a bad rap? Um, I know two years ago, they, they, totally, they totally, I, I, I meet lots of people that they won't even say, they say, they call it the B word. They won't even call it a batik. <laughs> but I think it's, I think they're just associating batiks with a certain look, you know, that the tie dyed modeled 
kind of muddy looking designs. And that's the modern cultures like bright, solid prints are not prints, but just solid sometimes. So. Okay. So they, right. I know this look, it's sort of, um, it's got kind of, yeah, a little muddy, um, kind of like a brownish greenish mm -hmm, doesn't have that crystal clear, uh, modern, uh, modern look that people are are going for. Okay. So it's the B word bad. It's a bad word. Um, and, and maybe you were hoping to draw in a new customer. And so talk a little bit about how you went about doing that and creating almost a new brand within your brand for boutiques. So what had happened was I, of course, you know, I look online and and I'm looking online and I'm seeing all these quilt, these neat quilts that people are making and they're posting on Instagram and all this stuff. And there was never anybody using our fabric, probably because our customer was maybe a little older and they weren't so much online. So I was like, how can I get these younger people to like using batiks or Hoffman fabrics? So we basically went back and forth and we found three designs that we'd previously printed maybe 30 years ago and they still had the chops in Bali. And they figured they did a couple test runs and they've got, they got the, to be with a solid ground and just a tonal design on it. And so we first came out with maybe May of, at May quilt market in 2015, me and you launched its first collection and it was just 24 solid batiks. And, um, my goal was to get the batiks in the modern stores that weren't carrying them and it, we succeeded. Okay. So what do you mean by a solid batik? Cause that seems confusing to me. A batik is not solid, right? So how do you create a solid batik? A, a batik, batiking is just the, is just the process, right? It's just the, the wax resists, the hand stamping. It's not a look. So I think most people, maybe they perceive a, the batik to be this certain way, but it can be any look, it can be anything. Okay. So it's basically just putting the wax resists with a solid background. Yes. Okay. And so that's what you decided to do. And how did you come up with the name? Um, we had a couple of different people here, but we just kicked around different names for about two weeks and that's what we came up with. <laughs> okay. So it's like <laughs> me and you, I but it's me with a plus sign. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. And how was it received? It was very well. Very well. Okay. Pe- people were into it. So it's, yeah. it's basically a, an, it's almost like a blender. It's an alternative to a solid. It's almost, it's like a, a nearly solid. Yeah. And then we, so we've had, I don't know, we've had 10 different collections come out and we also have a line of, we have about a hundred colors of total hand dyed solids that we produce, that we produce at our factory there. So they are solids and they're all done by hand. And I think it's probably, yeah, just a hundred different colors we have always in stock. And the cool thing okay. about hand dyed solids, um, that I'll mention just cause I don't know if Aaron can brag too much, but, um, they are done on that gray good that we talked about previously, but there is also no wrong side. Um, when you hand dye fabric, just like when you do a t-shirt, the color goes all the way through the goods where any other solid that's printed has a white side to the fabric. So if you're doing any sort of applique or any cutting, you're going to see that white base cloth come through. And so that's kind of special about these um, these solids. And I think that's another reason why the younger crowd and the modern girls love them. I mean, you hear the buzzword of low volume prints all the time, and that's kind of what we did. And then we just kind of have added a little bit of extra value in the small, small details of them. I see. Okay. That's cool. Um, and can you talk a little bit about, I know, um, people get concerned about the environmental impact of dyeing batiks and, um, and about the people who are, who are doing the work, you know, the people who are, 
you know, have their hands and their legs and feet immersed in the dye bath and are, you know, inhaling whatever may be in the air around it and are working day in, day out to do this work. Um, and, you know, about it, the effect it might have on, on their lives and on the, the plants and animals that are around them. So, um, you know, that's an important thing to think through. And I wondered if you could talk, since this is your business, about, um, about what you've done to think about that and to ensure that um, the, the processes that you're using are, are safe for all of those people and, and the environment around them. Yeah. So I, I was just actually over at our factory in Bali for the last, I just got back a couple of days ago. I was there for 15 days and spent a couple of days at the factory. So I got to experience it firsthand and I got to meet a lot of the boutiqueers that have worked there. And most of them have been there for 30 plus years and now their kids are doing it. And it's, it's pretty neat. So they've been there a long time. And, uh, about 15 years ago, because our family, you know, loves the, loves the environment, they love surfing and that kind of a deal. They built a you know, $500,000 water reclamation facility at our plant. So all of the rinse water that is used and all the dye, all the water is clean before it's returned to the environment. And I believe we are one of the only boutique factories that actually has a, a water treatment facility. Wow, that's really interesting. So can you say a little bit more about, I mean, you don't have to get into the specifics of the science, but um, but just a little bit more about some of the basics about how that works. So um, so maybe we can sort of understand um, how how the dye water is sort of transformed and made safe. Yeah, it's a it's basically a series of tanks. So it just kind of flushes out any um, any extra wax that might have been boiled off. So that's all repurposed and kind of collected, and then it just completely. Um, I guess sifting. I'm not sure what the right word would be. Like you said, I don't know the scientific like particulars, but it's basically like a flow of tanks that continues and continues to rinse the water. And then at the very end, it's tested and it goes back into the environment if it's reached its natural pH level. So that's kind of the only way that we know if it's ready to go back in the environment. And then of course, all that wax, we just try to reuse because it can be remelted and used again. I do know this. There's a pretty cool video we have on YouTube that shows the process of the water treatment center. Okay. So cool. And I will link to that in the show notes for people who are curious to cool. see how it works. And I've watched that video too. And, um, so that's why I, I did see a little bit about how it works. Um, so that's neat to see. And, um, and I know that you have mostly in-house designers, um, for the prints that you produce. And I wondered about that choice versus having freelance designers. It seems like and you can correct me if I'm wrong about that, but it seems like um, the trend right now for fabric manufacturers is to have these sort of big shot freelance designers. <laughs> if, uh, forgive me for that, using that term, but you know what I mean? Like gotcha. um, that bring in these big social media followings and um, lots of attention. Um, and you have some, um, you work with Latifah Safir, for example, um, and you've, you've have a few others, but mostly um, it's mostly in-house designers. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that choice. Yeah, I think part of that decision goes back to our families. I guess you could say culture and kind of decision-making from the get-go. We've always been first and foremost, a printmaking art place. We want always to have an art team that we believe in that can turn ideas into beautiful fabric, whether it's with metallic or digital printing or hand done and boutique stamps. Um, so that's kind of what grandpa Rube and grandpa Walter and flippy 
really prided themselves on was the art, the art side of this, not just printing yards and yards and yards to be sold. And so we've continued that and we have an amazing art team in house that has so many ideas and we as a family come up with cool ideas that we think are going to sell and would they turn them into great fabric? And then I think the point where we go to a licensed designer is for a niche that we might not be able to capture on our own. Um, like you said, Latifa has a very modern niche and she has wonderful projects to support that. And same with someone like McKenna Ryan that we don't necessarily know how to do applique deer crossing a river and she's the expert. So we go to her to create those types of things. Um, so I think anytime we're trying to hit a niche that isn't something we know enough about, or maybe our projects won't reach that, that, that group of people, then we try to find the right person and the best person for that. And then otherwise we have extremely talented people here that this is what they love to do. Carrie Clark. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Jeannie, I mean, when it comes to, I think we might get their digital printing Jeannie and her, Engineer, she has this engineering side. Her name's Jeannie Sumrall Aharo, but she has this engineering side and a photography side. And she's kind of basically hit the nail on the head when it comes to what people want for digitally printed fabric. And we have another lady named Carrie Carr that has an amazing following in the Midwest and all over now of just cute and, and doable and family home oriented stuff. So we really try to like hone in on those niches with people that we know can do a great job. Right. I see what you're saying, but, but, but mostly, and it sounds like even going forward, the, the main thrust is to sort of keep the design work done in-house. I think that's, um, I don't know. I think that's fairly unique. Um, it seems to me like maybe, maybe, maybe I'm not sure how you, I mean, you tell me, is that fairly unique? I mean, is there, do you see that, um, as a differentiator or do you see that as something that many fabric companies are doing as far as like the amount, uh, the ratio between, um, hiring freelancers or doing it in house. I, I understand what you're saying. I, I see lots of designers at lots of companies and we have very few. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So you think you, you do think that is different about you? Yes. It's unique. And I, I think it ends up, we might not get to that conclusion by thinking that way, but we get there because the art is our only and first priority, the art and the quality of fabric. And so I think when you just kind of surround yourself with only that goal, it ends up being like, you just find the best wherever you can in terms okay. of a, a drawer, a painter, a graphic designer, uh, somebody that totally understands boutiques and is going to take them, you know, forever. So pretty cool. Right. And, and once you hire that person full time and then they're on your staff, yeah. you can, you, you've got them, um, yeah. you know, and you, yeah, and they're part of your team. And so it makes sense to do things that way. Yeah. People here really become part of our family. We have many, many employees. Well, I don't even know if we call them employees. They've become our family too. And I mean, I've been coming here since I was five with my mom to work and, you know, people here have become my aunts and uncles. We have employees that have been here for over 30 years. So we definitely pride ourselves on that. 
Okay. And Hoffman fabrics are sold by reps. And this is just something that I I wanted to talk about, not necessarily because it's unique to Hoffman, but just because it's a part of the fabric industry that for whatever reason, I feel like doesn't really get talked about all that much for consumers or for people who aren't like in the know. So I just wanted to to talk about it. Um, So reps are people who who go to the independent retailers, the, um, the quilt shops, and they show the fabrics. So that the the retailers can look them over and can place orders. And so some fabric companies um, work with their own uh, reps. So they employ reps that um, just show their own fabrics. And then other fabric companies employ multi-line reps. So these are uh, reps that work for more than one fabric manufacturer. So when they get to your shop, they're going to show fabric from multiple different manufacturers. Um, so I don't know which is uh, what Hoffman uses. Maybe you can tell us that and just sort of explain that choice. So we have, I think, 20 reps in the, in the, just in the United States. And a few of them only carry Hoffman fabrics. The majority of them carry multiple lines. And we like it We like it when they don't carry competing lines or lines that have similar looks to us. So when we find – if we get a new rep, we want to make sure that they don't have any other companies that are, have the exact same looks as us. But, yeah, it works either way. Sometimes they have multiple lines and sometimes they just carry Hoffman fabrics. It just kind of – each situation is different. Okay. And are they their own company? <laughs> so in other words, are they um, self-employed? Are they working yeah. for, uh, I mean, who, who employs them? Yeah, they're independent contractors. Okay. They're independent contractors. So if you wanted to get into that business, you can just say, I am now working as a fabric rep well, or do you get training somehow? How does this work? I think it's a pretty old school deal, and I I really don't think there's anywhere to get training by then besides just getting a line and going on the road, right? It's it's a pretty, okay. It's a really really old school industry. <laughs> it is an old school industry. Yeah. It's sort of fascinating, and so you kind of just get in your in your van or whatever, and yeah. you just sort of hit the road. Yep. Yeah. And you you just drive around from place to place on the interstate and make appointments and show up and take out your your suitcase or whatever it is and show what you have. It's exactly yeah. how it is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyway, I just wanted to talk about that a little bit because I think it's sort of a part of the industry that maybe people don't understand is happening um, because it's not something you see if you're a consumer. It's so also, as old school as it is, it's also a very lucrative part of the industry. Um, and lu- lucrative in what way and for whom? For the sales reps. They they do a killing and, and they're really good at what they do. They they do justice to all of their lines. And just like our employees, we've had reps that we had their, their father as a rep and then he passed his business down to his son and now he's our rep. And, and they, they also can have family businesses that do really well, which is really cool to see. Yes, that's true. It is a family business. Yeah, and um, yes, and I think people may, may not know that either. Um, but I have found that to be true, that it does get passed down um, in families. Uh, so yes, it's so fascinating. Okay. Um, all right. So Spring Market, Spring Quilt Market, which is the industry trade show for quilting and fabric, um, was just last week. Uh, we're recording this just a few days after it was in Portland, Oregon. Um, I'm, I know Hoffman uh, fabrics, Hoffman, California fabrics was there. And so I'm wondering, um, how many booths you guys had this year? Yeah, that's, uh, one of my responsibilities. We had 12, 10 by tens. So we had a section that would have been 30 feet wide by 50 feet long. 
and then an aisle with a connecting section that's 20 by 20, 20 mm-hmm. by 10. Yeah. Um, and we do that a little bit purposefully to separate a couple different brands within the brand to keep people flowing through. But yeah, we kind of have maintained the same structure of our booth for the last, I've been here for three years since college. So since then, and it seems to work. People love it. We always get awesome comments that it's bright and exciting and welcoming and open. So we, we always love coming home after hearing that rather than, oh, it's cluttered or, you know, all those little things. But right. a good chef. Okay. And um, ha- I'm thinking a little longer term. So maybe Aaron has to speak to this, Haley, since it sounds like you um, have, haven't been there quite as long just because you're younger. Um, but is that the same sort of footprint that you've had over the last like five or 10 years? Yeah, it is. It's the same footprint. Yes. Okay. So it hasn't shrunk at all. No. Okay. Uh, yeah. um, and, ha- and has quilt market in general changed for you guys as far as like what you do at the show, whether you're writing orders, domestic orders, the same amount of domestic orders as you've always done or more or less? Oh, I think it's definitely changed in the last couple of years. It used to be a big deal. Everyone would go there to look at all the new stuff and no one, and you had to go there to see the new stuff, right? Or now it's not that way. Everyone sees everything on Facebook and Instagram before you even get there. So it's kind of, I think it's kind of lost the, the, ex, the excitement that of it maybe. And of course, less people are going. It's it's expensive for a small mom mom pop shop to come all the way across the country, especially to the West Coast. So right, okay. That's so changing. all right. So it's definitely changing. The, the, you have this, of it, the importance of it. I think is changing. Okay, the importance of it is changing. So you're paying for the same amount of booths. Yes. You're paying for the same footprint. You're there, but but everybody's already seen everything online. So the importance is changing, and so. What is the importance now, would you say, versus the importance, let's say, five or eight years ago? Well, we're st- every show we still we, we we still get new customers that we don't we haven't dealt with before, and we still okay. have this you know a lot of the same customers that have been coming for twenty years. You still got to go to support them. You know what I mean? Okay, so you're there for those customers, the new, uh, the new ones, some new ones, some legacy ones that you yeah. definitely still need to connect with. And we don't, sh- um, we don't show everything before we get there. We, we mostly save 90% of it for the people that come to the show. And we also have show specials for the customers that are coming to the shows that are, that are only good specials for the show to reward the people that actually came. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is important. Yeah. Um, and would you say that there is, um, there's an importance of being there for social media purposes. In other words, the excitement for the people at home who are watching, for the consumers at home to see a splash on Instagram. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's important, I think. But at the same time, our, our customer at the end of the day is, is the store owners, right? And not, right. not the end consumers. So it's with the whole social media thing, I think it's trying to find a balance of, you know, showing the store owners what you have that's new that's coming out and maybe not showing everything too soon because by the time it gets to the consumer's hands, it's already old and they've been seeing it for six months. It's kind of trying to find a balance of marketing to the end consumer and also the store owner. Mm -hmm. It's tricky to do. It's really tricky to do because, um, you know, the temptation is to really show off um, the booth and make it beautiful and have everybody snap pictures and take, you know, and put them up on Instagram and, um, hashtag you and, uh, you know, all of that stuff. But then the end consumer seen it all. Yeah. And yeah. that, that is hard. The end consumer goes, Oh, great. I can't have that for six months. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so. 
Right. It is tricky for sure. And then there's also this sort of like, um, you know, people buying things at sample spree and then reselling them immediately and yeah. all of that stuff. So all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff. <laughs> All right, let's talk about digital printing. So um, you referred a little bit to it earlier. I think that's really exciting. You guys um, are definitely getting into it. I think all of the companies are thinking about it, are um, are working on it. And so tell us a little bit about the lines that Hoffman is printing digitally now. Yeah, I mean, we've, uh, I think it was must have been like three to four years ago that we ran our first digital print and we've kind of, I guess, fostered the endless possibilities that come with that. There's, there's no, uh, there's no formula for the repeat that you have to have, which has been amazing for us. And I'll explain that in a second. And, and the photorealistic, fine detail, endless amount of colors, shades, textures. I mean, you can't, it's the first time we've been able to do this and it's, it's really, really incredible. I mean, are called the wild collection. And we just added wild kingdom. Those are animals that people really have only ever seen in a picture to that detail. And now it's on fabric that can be turned into anything. We've had people stretch them over canvas as a picture in their home and, and quilt some amazing quilts for their grandkids. And the photorealistic aspect of it is really important to us. And again, like I said, the no repeats, that's another thing that really opened up some doors for us. We've created a, we call it a designer bolt and we have a few collections now that are done this way. But right now the first kind of formula we've used is a two yard panel that consists of eight fat quarters in eight different prints. So um, we actually just released at spring market a line called details and it's our way of doing basics. So you have your stripes and polka dots and chevrons and, and circles and one bolt is one color, but within that bolt, you have eight different prints of different values, different shades of that color. And we release 10 colors and a store buys 10 bolts and they have 80 different fabrics. So not only is it a new art form and a new level of art, but it's also a new way of buying fabric potentially. So we kind of like can't get over the amount of awesome possibilities that it has. And we love it and we love to be innovative and we kind of, our 94 years on that. So we're going to keep going. It's also, wow. it's also digital printing is m- much more environmentally friendly than traditional, s- traditional screen printing. There's no water used. There's no excess dye that's being flushed into some river. It's, so that, that's, that's one of the points we really like about it also. Right. Yeah. I've seen, um, some of these huge digital printers and, um, it, 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 the one that I saw, um, it looks like a, an inkjet printer, like you would have at home. So you have like the, you know, the printing cartridge, um, essentially. Mm -hmm. So you're not like pouring dye onto anything. Exactly. It's we, and it's really cool to see pictures and stuff from our printers that are doing the digital printing for us. They're, they're, uh, they're, I don't know what you call them labs or it's like a hospital. Oh my gosh. It's so sterile and and clean and perfect and precise. It's like, it's something that's so new to fabric. <laughs> right. Okay. And the digital printing, it's done overseas, correct? Yes. Okay. So um, I think that that was something I didn't understand. For some reason, I guess I thought 
because maybe because I've been to Spoonflower's yeah. plant in um, in Durham, North Carolina, yeah. which is where I saw the digital printing that I was describing earlier. Um, and so in my mind, I was like, digital printing must be taking place in the United States. Yeah. I'm not sure why. So um, and so I didn't realize that it had it was actually being done overseas. Yeah. So the, our digital printing is a little bit different than Spoonflower. Spoonflower is using pigment printing and there's no finishing involved and there's no there's no preparation process involved where the digital printing that we're doing, it's this, it goes through the same finishing process as a traditional conventional printing method and the same prep preparation process. So it's not just, you can't just throw it in your warehouse and call it a day. There's a lot more to it than that. Okay. I see. And is it printed on the same gray goods as your other fabrics? Uh, it's not, we use a couple of different kinds of gray goods, but you know, um, some of them are the same. Yeah. Okay. I see. All right. Um, so you're, you have fabric that's printed in Bali and then you have fabrics printed in Japan. And then this, the, um, the di digital printing is, where is that printed? We're, we print in a couple of different countries. We're printing in Korea and Pakistan and China. Okay. All right. So it's all printed overseas, been in lots of different places. I see. Okay. Um, and do you think that any of that printing is ever going to come to the U.S.? Like, does digital printing open up the possibility of bringing printing back, like, onshore oh, or no? Yeah, we really hope so. That's, okay. That's what we're hoping for. I mean, I just, I'm not sure why to me that seems like, for some reason to me, that seems like maybe that opens that possibility, but I'm not sure, sure maybe, maybe it doesn't. Yeah, there's, I know there's a, a, a print plant that recently bought some printers and we're hoping to hoping they can figure it out soon. Okay. Interesting. All right. Um, so we've seen some shakeups this year. This year has been the year of shakeups oh. <laughs> in the, uh, in the quilt fabric industry. Um, Coates nearly shut down free spirit a couple of months ago and it was then bought up in the, by the very, in the la very last minute by Jaftex. And then, um, the original cotton and steel designers announced uh, two weeks ago that they're walking away from RJR. So there's been quite a few shakeups and a lot of talk among maybe consumers and maybe people who work in the industry as well about oversaturation in the market. Like there's just too much fabric. The, the production cycle has gone from maybe a, a fall release and a spring release to a four times a year release. We've got fall, we've got winter, we've got spring, we've got summer. And um, each of these has become really ballooned. So there's so much fabric. And I wondered about your perspective. Are you seeing that? Is is the market ripe for a correction? I mean, I yeah, it looks like there's a lot of, each company has a lot of designers and that's a lot of fabric. And I don't know how, you know, stores can't really, stores can't really keep up with it. I don't think by the time they invest in a, a line and they make a project, the line's gone. You know what I mean? So we're, mm -hmm. with digital printing, we we're reordering a little bit differently and it seems like our lines are staying around a lot longer. So we're trying to have mm -hmm. maybe less collections that stay around longer for the stores. Okay. Yeah. All right. So continue to innovate, keep our head down and move forward. Right. There's a, lot, there's a lot of stuff going on. Right. Yeah. It's been, it's been a little bit of a rough, a little bit of a rough year, but you feel confident that, um, the consumer is still hungry and there's still a market for, for what you're doing. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. If anything, the demand's higher now than it's been in the last 10 years for Hoffman. And we're really lucky that we have a legacy and longevity to kind of stand upon right now. And we we've seen busier and busier and more orders and more orders and more demand, more demand. So we just like Aaron said, keep our head down, keep 
keep designing the best with the best quality. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I want to make sure we get to some recommendations. So I'm going to put you on the spot um, because I didn't give you a ton of time to prepare, but I'm going to ask you to recommend some stuff that you're enjoying right now. So it could be a book, magazine, tool, um, crafty thing, project, whatever it might be that um, you would recommend to a creative friend. So I'll let you're sitting in the same room so you can kind of make eye contact and choose as I I won't pick on which one of you is going to go first, but one of you um, can kick it off. So tell us uh, something you would recommend to a creative friend. Something I would recommend is jumping in the ocean and catching a wave. And catching a wave. (laughs) That sounds awesome. Mm -hmm. I wish I lived closer to the ocean and I would do that today. Absolutely. Do you surf, Aaron? Yes. You do. And how often do you get to go surfing? Uh, a couple of times a week. Nice. Yeah. And are you, are you like as good as Walter and yes. Flippy? No, no, never. I'll, I'll never catch a wave as big as they have caught. Okay. But will, um, Haley, Haley argues that you are yeah. pretty good. I will brag for him. He's an amazing surfer and his daughter is well on her way to keeping the Hoffman legacy going. She's an amazing surfer too. Um, how old is your daughter, Erin? She's 11. Wow. Nice. What's her name? Indy. Indy. Wonderful. And um, there was another award-winning surfer in your family who I failed to mention who was a woman. Yes. Our Aunt Joyce, she was three-time women's world champion, I think, in 1965, 66, and 67. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. She's our parents, my mom and Aaron's dad's oldest sister. So Indy is taking after her. Hopefully. Yeah. Wow. Go Aunt Joyce. Right. Okay. (laughs) That was a good one, Erin. Thank you. And Haley, do you have something to recommend? Um, kind of, I'm not, I don't actually. sew. my goal is to learn this year. So if anybody has any recommendations on how to learn, that would be awesome. But I have kind of fallen in love with our bark cloth fabric, which not many people know about, but it's a, I mean, it's also called coconut cloth. So if that's more familiar for people, but I actually just had pillows made out of it. And I know that most people listening to this could make pillows in five seconds, but they're amazing. And um, the prints are awesome. They're tropical prints. So kind of more of my grandpa's open line. So super into bark cloth right now, which I think other people would be too for bags and clothes and stuff. And I also am training for another marathon and I just downloaded Audible, which I'm sure everybody else was way quicker to the game than I was, but I'm super excited to start listening to books while I run. Yeah. Awesome. And do you listen to podcasts, either of you? Yes. I love podcasts. <laughs> okay. Any favorite podcasts that you like right now? I think that Joe Rogan is kind of crazy, but he has the most interesting and smart people on his podcast. And what was the, oh, I really got into how I built this, which I thought was so cool. Cause most of the time it was talking about family businesses and how they, I mean, one was Kate Spade and that was great. It was a husband and wife and just so cool about how companies that we all know and think are big corporate companies got started. So that was another good one. I think that one's put on by NPR. Mm-hmm. I love how I bought this. I've listened to every episode with Guy Raz. Yeah. Great. That's a great one. Mm-hmm. Good recommendation. Sounds good. All right. Well, um, Aaron and Haley, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walsh and Naps podcast. I really enjoyed talking with both of you. We did too. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. 
And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing and blogging and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. Today's episode was brought to you by Stitches Midwest. Exclusively for Walshy Naps listeners, you can get 20% off Stitches Midwest 2018 classes and events by visiting Stitches events slash Midwest and entering the coupon code Midwest 18 WSN at checkout with stimulating classes and shopping for all, including knitters, crocheters, weavers, and sewers and quilters and others interested in all things yarn and fabric. You won't want to miss this amazing show. You can learn more at stitches.events slash Midwest. Thank you so much, Stitches Midwest. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.